Let me try to get us caught up on this particular moment and give you just a little bit of background. If you've been with us the last month, we've been talking about missional movement. And the big idea has been that the heart of Jesus for the church is not that the church would feel like a social club or an internally focused dead institution, but the heart of Jesus, um, and and just as a caveat, we're going to celebrate this on Easter Sunday, the heart of Jesus who is alive is that the church would not be would not be a dead institutionalized museum, but instead the missional movement that Jesus dreamed of when he stepped into human history. That the church would follow Jesus on mission into the darkness, that we would bring the good news of the gospel, which is the person and work of Jesus that brings healing, life, reconciliation, redemption, and a demonstration of the kingdom of God. And for the last few weeks, we've talked about the different marks of missional movement. We talked about the centrality of the gospel, that what the world needs is actually not religion. The world needs the grace of God in Jesus, which is different than religion. And then we talked about the necessity of God, the Holy Spirit for missional movement, that if God, the Holy Spirit doesn't work and move and change hearts and change lives and bring power and grace and life, um, missional movement is just you and me getting together and trying to figure out what's the smartest strategy to try to make a dent in darkness. Then we talked about Bible honoring and we dug into the reality that to be a missional movement, we need the authority of God and the structure of God. And we need God to show us what reality looks like and feels like and tastes like. And that's why we have his word. Um, Today, we get to talk about what I think is the most difficult component of missional movement for us to understand and comprehend. It's, It's definitely, I think, the most complex. And it's the one where there's the most danger in me saying something that's not precise or not clear that leads to a lot of confusion. And that's the dynamics of the kingdom of God as it relates to mission. See, we we say this a lot, that we want to be a church that loves God, loves people, and pushes back darkness. And when we talk about pushing back darkness, um, if you've been in any of our membership classes or the way we do discipleship, we break pushing back darkness into kind of two categories. And the two categories are proclaiming the gospel That's telling people about Jesus, that there's no way for people to experience the kingdom of God personally as good news unless God does something in their heart to help them see just how beautiful the cross and resurrection is. We want to tell people about Jesus. Um, There's darkness not just out there. It's not just um, the darkness of ISIS or the darkness of greed or the darkness of systemic racism. Darkness starts inside of the human heart right? Uh, Joseph Conrad's killer book, Heart of Darkness, is that great story of him thinking that he's going to find external darkness as he travels into the interior of Africa. And what he really finds is the darkness that's embedded in the human soul, right? So without the gospel of Jesus, the problem of darkness in the world is not a lack of education primarily. It's not a lack of good systems and structures primarily. The, The problem of darkness in the world is first and foremost, sin, sin, And I know it's not popular to talk about sin and that sounds old fashioned, but sin's not trite. Sin is us setting our hearts against God. In the beginning, as we're gonna see today, in the beginning, what essentially happened is we went over to a friend's house that has a really great place, right? And he's got a flat screen TV and a pool and a refrigerator with all the delicacies you could ever dream of. Things that normal people just don't buy, like orange San Pellegrino, right? Things that you just can't afford. Things that, things that if you were rich, you would buy from Whole Foods all at one time. And 
we went over to our friend's house. We went over to our friend's house and we're like, hey, you know what? I do like your TiVo. I do like Xbox 360. I do like your pool. I do like your refrigerator. And, and you know what would make all this a lot better? If you would just get out of here and let me have it without you in my presence. Now, that's what we did to God. That's what we did to God because he created this world for us to enjoy and to enjoy all the things that he made like food and sunsets and the beauty of creation. And he planted us in it with him to enjoy him as the greatest treasure of our lives. And the great exchange that led to all the death and brokenness of the world was us saying to God, you know what would make this place a lot better if I didn't have to share it with you? If I could just have your stuff and not have you as God, if I could just be my own God, everything would be a lot better. And in that moment, we traded creator for creation, creator for creation. So when we talk about pushing back darkness in the world, we're not just talking about trying to figure out really great ways to engage with educating, hurting people. Uh, We're talking about the reality of if darkness doesn't get pushed back in me, if God's grace doesn't do something to change the desires of my heart and the trajectory of my life, I'm never going to love God. I'm never going to live in reality as it really is. So we need to tell people about Jesus. Now, we also talk about pushing back darkness with a demonstration of the kingdom. See, here's what's crazy. We want to be a church that both tells people the good news as the mouth house of Jesus but we also want to be a church that demonstrates the heart of God for the world that we live in as the hands and feet of Jesus. That's where we get into engaging the injustices of this world, pushing back darkness by loving and serving the poor, pushing back darkness by holding up the cause of those that are poor and oppressed and marginalized in our world, building relationships with people that are pushed to the edges, um, having the courage as the people of God to stand up and say, hey, you know what? Um, Racism is still alive and well in the United States. It is. And, And praise be to God, there's been progress. And to deny the progress would actually be an affront to the goodness of God. There has been progress. There has been traction. Um, but, but to deny the fact that there's still personal racism and systems of racism in our culture is actually to put our heads in the sand and ignore the heart of God for justice. Now, I'm just giving you that as one example. Uh, we want to demonstrate the kingdom of God in the way that we love and serve our schools in the way that we love and serve those that are hungry. Um, We want to bring together telling people about Jesus and showing people the love of Jesus in some really profound ways. Um, Think the single mom who's stripping to try to provide for her kid, who probably has an entire history of really broken relationships, starting with the lack of healthy, safe, masculine presence in a dad that's then translated into trying to find love and identity in men, that's now left her by herself trying to figure out how to provide for this baby, what do we want to do as a church for her? Well, man, we want to do a couple of things. Uh, One, we want to tell her about the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's in the cross of Jesus that the sins that we've committed can be atoned for and covered and cleansed. But it's also in the cross of Jesus that the sins that other people have committed against us that have marked our identity and left us with shame get dealt with. Now, what we don't want to do is say to her, hey, you know what? We really want to care for your spiritual well-being. We don't really care about the fact that you can't find another job. 
We don't really care about the fact that your kids are hungry at night. We don't really care about the fact that you have no idea where to turn because you have no circle of community where people are really going to love you and be a safe place for you and not be predatory. But we really do love your spiritual well-being. <laughs> Can you feel the hypocrisy of that? We want to be a church that actually cares about the spiritual well-being of the people that we love and serve, but also cares about the physical well-being. And by the way, in case you're thinking that that's just theological liberalism, read James. Read the book of James. Because James says in that book, is it not hypocrisy? This is a paraphrase. Is it not hypocrisy to have a friend who's cold and to say to them, brother, be blessed, go in peace, be warm and be filled. And not also take the step to address the physical needs in their life, giving them a cloak, giving them a coat, inviting them into your home. See, when we talk about the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of the kingdom, we're talking about holistic mission as followers of Jesus. And I think at the end of the day, to understand this piece of missional movement, the kingdom of God, um, it demands that you answer a question especially if you're a follower of Jesus, but even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you got to start wrestling with a really profound question. And here's the question. Do you think that the world is more like the Titanic or is it more like Syria? Is the world more like the Titanic or is the world more like Syria? And here's what I mean. If the world's more like the Titanic, then it's completely a lost cause. It's a lost cause. And there's no real need to engage in trying to work for the repair and restoration of the Titanic. It's going down. The only hope of the world, if it's like the Titanic, is that the gospel could be a life raft to rescue some survivors and get them off the boat. Now, in theology, that whole system of belief has led to some really dark things, if we could just be honest about it. In moments in history, there have been times where the world gets really dark and evil, and instead of calling evil, evil, and engaging to tell people about Jesus, but also engaging to be salt and light that work for the advance of God's kingdom, there have been times where with that titanic worldview stuck in our heads, the church has said, oh sweet, things are getting worse, maybe we finally get to get raptured out of here. The idea being, hey, The gospel is this escape plan versus this movement of God's grace to restore and reconcile people to God and each other and even to restore ultimately creation itself. If the world's like the Titanic, the world's like the Titanic, then it's just the spiritual stuff that matters. It's just the spiritual stuff. It's it's just that stripper's eternal soul that matters. It's not her kid's ability to have food. It's not her ability to find a better job. If the world's like the Titanic, there's no hope of it getting better. So all we want to do is try to rescue a few people from drowning with the gospel and let the whole thing sink. And in fact, the faster it sinks, the better, less work for us to do. Now, on the other hand, if the world's more like Syria, if the world's more like Syria, then there's a before and there's an after going on in human history that demands that we think more deeply about what the gospel means. Let let me show you a couple of pictures. Um, This picture is a before and after in Syria. And I just want you to note the before here. I want you to just allow yourself to acknowledge that there's some really beautiful people and beautiful places in that land. There's dignity there. There's things there that point to the glory of God. There's things there that are beautiful. There's things there that are rich. The after picture is the result of years and years of conflict. Here's another pic. You see 
beautiful architecture and gardens and plant life. This is a picture that says, hey, this is a place, this is a place that people call home. This is a place that matters. This is a place of worth and value. The after picture shows you the devastation of years and years of conflict. Show you one more before and after. Here's a place that you might want to actually visit. Here's a place that people have been tending creation by caring for gardens and trimming trees and watering plants and building architecture and caring about culture. The after picture, here's the result of devastation. Now, personally, I found it fascinating hearing the interviews of a lot of people that still live in Syria when asked, why don't you just leave? Like, why don't you abandon this place and go away, become a refugee? And one of the recurring threads that keeps coming up is, yeah, this is a really broken place, but it's home. It's home and I care about it. And I want to raise my kids here and I want this place to be restored. Now, here's what's happened in Syria. And this is not, um, this is not me pretending to be a, a geopolitical analyst because I'm not. What's happened in Syria is the very same thing that's happened on planet Earth. The work of sin that's brought in death and that's brought in the kingdom of darkness has deconstructed. Constantly in this world, there are the forces of chaos that deconstruct everything. They take what's orderly and beautiful and they try to make it rot and turn to dust. Now, there's complexities in that. There's systems in that. Uh, there's dictatorship in that. There's all kinds of things at work in that that I don't pretend to understand or have answers for. But what we can say is that looks a lot like planet Earth. Planet Earth is a place that has value and dignity and worth. Planet Earth is a place that actually reflects the hands of an artist. Planet Earth is a place that people call home. Planet Earth is a place where it's not just the spiritual stuff that matters. The physical stuff also matters. And planet Earth, if you could just be honest, if you could just be honest, planet Earth is affected a lot more by entropy than it is uh, macroevolution. What do I mean by that? Well, if you believe in macroevolution, then certainly things should be getting better and better and more and more complex. Versus the reality of what you see when you look out your window, if left alone, things are always moving into worse and worse states of decay. Why is the world like that? And is God's heart for the world, is God's heart for the world, if you're a follower of Jesus, and and I'll just throw this out as a caveat, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're trying to figure out who he is, this is also a good question for you to ask. Is God's heart for the world much more like the Titanic where he's willing to scrap this created place, end it, and just get human souls out to a future place called heaven? Or is God's heart for the world more like more like Syria? This is a place that's been torn and it's broken and it's messed up and it's gonna require a lot of work to redeem and reconcile and bring hope and deliverance. Well, I think, I think, that this fourth component of missional movement, which is a focus on the kingdom of God. I think that this fourth piece of missional movement actually demands that we wrestle with one of the big themes of scripture that helps answer that question. It helps answer the question, does God think of the earth as the Titanic that he's willing to let sink? Or does God think of the earth more like a war-torn place that does have value and dignity that needs to be liberated and restored? 
liberated and restored. So here's what I want to do. If you guys would give me grace to do this, uh, I want to take you to the very beginning of the Bible, give you a picture of God's dream for his kingdom. Then I want to take you to the very end of the Bible and show you the ultimate end of where we're heading in history. And then I just want to ask a simple question. How do we get from here to here? How do we get from here to here? So in the beginning, this is Genesis chapter one. Let me read it to you. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So this is humanity having value, dignity, and worth as image bearers of the most high God. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them, equal image bearers of the most high God, with a job to do. The job here is described as dominion. We're going to flesh out what that means. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. Every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. Now look at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. That's not just spiritual. It's also physical. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Great. Bible teacher by the name of Graham Goldsworthy is an Anglican guy in Australia. He's written some great stuff on the kingdom. Here's what he says the kingdom of God can be defined as. The kingdom of God is God's people called by his name, connected to him, experiencing his grace and love, drinking deeply of his presence. God's people in God's place, in God's place under God's rule. Now, here's what we see in these verses in Genesis, in the beginning. In this poetry, in this poetry, this creation account full of poetry, here's what you see. We have God's people, Adam, Eve, man, woman, image bearers, with God, enjoying God, in God's place, beginning as a garden, Eden. Under God's rule, which is his sovereign care and provision, it's not rule that makes life crummy and gray and boring. It's life in which his rule leads to blessing and benefit and joy and delight and depth. God's saying, hey, let me provide everything that you need. Let me plant you in my place. Let me be with you so that you can drink deeply of me and enjoy me. Now, here's what this means. Um, If you really want to understand God's heart for the world and whether the world's more like Syria or more like the Titanic, we have to go back to his opening vision for what humanity would look like what creation would look like. And here's what you see in the beginning. You have God dreaming of God and man living in harmony, relationship and depth. C.S. Lewis put it like this. um, Just as cars were made to run on gasoline, human beings were made to run on God. Meaning your life was created to be connected to and filled by the very life of God. And God, God loves them so much. He gives them food and beauty, and pleasure, and language, and music, and sex, and family, and all the things that are really important and beautiful. He gives them all those things to enjoy, but in the center of that, 
he actually is the treasure that sustains them and defines their existence. Man and God made to be connected. And then we see that man and man were made to be connected. And here's what I mean by that. What you have in Genesis 1 is the blueprint for God doing culture building. See, culture, culture doesn't come out of the heart of man. Culture came out of the heart of God. Now, it gets twisted and broken because of our sin. Make no mistake. But the idea of multiplying and filling the earth is God's dream that human beings in his image, connected to him, would cover the earth with culture and relationship that would reflect the beauty of God. Now, can you imagine, because there's so many beautiful things in our culture right now because we're image bearers of God. Um, Can you imagine as beautiful as little pieces of culture are in the midst of a lot of ugly chunks of culture, can you imagine what culture could have looked like under this dream? Can you imagine people without racism and greed? Can you imagine men that had never even had the thought cross their mind to objectify women building culture? Can you imagine what it would have looked like if art wasn't just mixed with brokenness, but if all art had depth and beauty that reflected the very heart and nature of God? Can you imagine what it would have looked like for them to dig into science and mathematics with brains that were made in the image of God that weren't also bent with our stubbornness to hate God and raise our fists at him? Can you imagine what science would have looked like? Can you imagine a a culture that as they developed technology, they didn't worship technology as God, but they used technology to care for creation and each other? See, here's what you have in the beginning is God saying, hey, I've put inside of you as image bearers what you need to expand from here and fill the earth with my goodness, my beauty, and my glory as you build culture. And part of it here is that the the dream that God has of his people and his place under his rule is that man and woman would have dominion over the earth. And is there anybody else in the room that just kind of cringes when you hear that word? dominion, because we think of dictatorship, we think of an abusive husband, uh, we, we think of the way in which people in authority often abuse people that are under their authority. But God's dream for dominion is not an abusive dream, it, it's the dream of stewardship in which all of God's delegated authority gets granted to Adam and Eve so that they can cover, protect, and honor creation in a beautiful way. To not worship creation like it's God, It's not redwood tree, you're God, Um, let me bow down to you, nor is it redwood tree, you have no value and I don't care what happens to you. God's dream is this beautiful caring for creation in which man and woman would work together to expand the dominion of God under his authority. And can we just stop and just say, God had a pretty beautiful thing in mind. It was really beautiful, it was really deep, it was really special until we destroyed it. The way that we, we destroyed it is uh, we, we said, hey, this is a pretty great house, pretty awesome party. We'd rather have it without you here. And as soon as that happened, here's what happened. Man's relationship with God breaks. Man's cultural relationship with man breaks. Man's relationship with creation breaks. And instead of them multiplying and filling the earth with beauty, they multiply and they fill the earth with the opposite. Right? Just read just read the Genesis account. Here's what happens. By chapter four, you have the first murder. A brother kills his brother. By the time you get to chapter six, you have culture built, but instead of being a just, beautiful, peaceful culture of worshiping God and loving each other, it's a culture that's full of violence and murder. You have the seeds of racism. You have all kinds of greed. It's broken. 
It's broken. And in this moment, in this moment, if God cared about the earth or if he saw the earth like the Titanic, in this moment, he has the opportunity to go hands off and let us sink with the ship. And we would have, we would have. But instead, in this moment, he makes a promise that he himself through the seed of the woman is gonna bring his rule back to his people. He is actually gonna restore what breaks. Now, let me show you the end. Flip to the very other end of your Bible. We're going to book in this deal. That's God's dream. It's a picture of his kingdom. It breaks. Now let's look at where the Bible ends. This is Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and new. I love the story of the Bible. It's so true. It resonates so deeply. It's got so much authority and it reveals the heart of God. Here's what we see in the beginning. God's dream. I'm going to have my people image bearers called by my name, living with me, treasuring me, enjoying my creation and caring for it. I'm going to have my people in, in my place under my rule. And it's going to be beautiful. It breaks because of sin. Death enters in the kingdom of darkness enters into this place. The end of the story. What does God do? He unworks the powers of darkness so deeply that you end the Bible with a restoration that's even more beautiful than the beginning blueprint. Here's what God says, Revelation 21. You're going to be my people. And guess what? I'm actually going to be with you. You're going to be in my place, not a disembodied heaven, but a new earth. And you're going to live under my rule. In fact, I'm going to be the very light that you live by. Now, when I was little, I used to get super bummed out by what I thought heaven was going to be like because it looks so depressing and boring. Um, heaven to me looked like what's popular in a lot of like third, third wave coffee shops. If you go to big cities and what I mean is like, like the hipper you are as a coffee shop, the more sterile your cafe has to be. It's like walking in and it's, it's like being inside of a supercomputer. Everything's white. There's no color. There's nothing on the walls. And my dream of heaven was like, we're going to be in this disembodied place, floating around clouds. The only thing that there is to do is like pluck on a flipping harp. (laughs) And it just sucks. Like, it just sounds like a crappy place. It sounds like a boring place, especially for a human being that's in flesh and also the spirit. 
Now, here's what I think. I think what the Bible teaches is such a more beautiful end game for the work of God. And that's not a disembodied heaven that's out there. It's a new heavens and a new earth where every tear has been wiped away and human beings are experiencing the restoration of themselves and this world to the glory of God. How does that happen? Well, (laughs) we don't have time to get into every detail, so let me give you the short answer. Jesus. (laughs) How does that happen? Jesus. It happens through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God to this planet. Jesus is working to advance his kingdom, and there is a day in which Jesus will physically return, and upon his physical return, the new heavens and the new earth will be fully and finally established and it's going to be beautiful. So in this moment, what does that mean for the people of God? What does that mean for the people of God? If Jesus came to bring his kingdom and we could go to a lot of places like Luke 4 where Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says this in the temple at the beginning of his ministry. And then he drops the mic on everybody, walks off stage and says, that just happened. We could look at Jesus through his cross and resurrection, taking the authority away from sin taking the authority away from death through his resurrection, taking the authority away from the kingdom of darkness that works to steal, kill, and destroy. We can look at all of these different passages that say that his kingdom is here, his kingdom is now. He has all authority in heaven and earth. He's the name above every name. We can look at all those passages and see that something has begun that's not yet finished, that's here and now, but invisible, but invisible. So here's what I want to do. I want to end by trying to be as practical as I can. What does a kingdom-focused missional movement really look like? What will that mean for the people of God if we believe that? If we see OKC and Edmond and Guthrie and Shawnee and South OKC, if we see these places as more like Syria that need the redeeming, liberating, reconciling work of the kingdom— more than we see them as the Titanic with no hope, hands off, let it sink— what will that mean for our church? Let me, let me give you a couple big ideas and we'll flesh them out. First of all, to do this, can I use a really geeky theological word and then try to define it? Is that okay? Because um, I don't know a better way to communicate this. So point one, if we're going to engage this, we can't have an over or an under-realized eschatology. Over or under-realized eschatology. Um, anybody ever heard that geeky word eschatology? Good. Good. Okay. So here's what eschatology is. Eschatology is the study of end or last things. So if you want to know uh, what's the end of death going to be, that falls into the camp of uh, studying eschatology. If you want to know about the return of Jesus, if you want to know about the new heavens, the new earth, uh, if you want to know what happens to the physical body of the followers of Jesus upon his return, those are all things that fit into the realm of eschatology. Uh, Final judgment, that's eschatology. Now here's where eschatology gets really weird. Um, We tend to have an over or an under-realized eschatology, meaning, meaning this. Christians either want to make the mistake of pretending like There's not a whole lot that we're waiting on and we've got it all today. 
or there's not a whole lot we've got today in the kingdom of God and we're waiting on everything for the future. And the way this fleshes out that gets really destructive, if you have an over-realized eschatology, the kingdom of God is all here right now. There's really not that much, if anything, that we're waiting on. It leads to a Christian triumphalism that's just not congruent with the way the world is. It, it leads to sort of a charismaniac naivete about the day in which we live that denies the fact that, yeah, Jesus did defeat sin on the cross, meaning, hey, guess what? If you're a Christian, your sins have been paid for by Jesus, removed from you as far as the East is from the West, but is sin still present in your life and in this world? Please say, yeah, or like, yeah, right? Like, you can be a Christian. Are you going to wrestle with sin tomorrow when you get up? Yeah, you are. You are. Jesus' cross is the decisive word against sin. Is sin still a force bringing deconstruction on planet Earth? Yeah, everywhere. Everywhere. What about death? Um, did Jesus defeat death? Yeah, he defeated death in his resurrection. It's one of the big ideas in all of Paul's epistles. It's, it's in his resurrection that he's triumphed over the grave. But is death still a human reality? Man, my friend is burying her son this week. How about the kingdom of darkness? Did Jesus defeat powers and principalities in his cross and resurrection? Scripture says unequivocally, yes. The name above every name, all authority. Are the powers of darkness still at work to try to confuse and blind and thwart the work of the gospel? Yeah, they're all around you. So an over-realized eschatology just denies the fact that Jesus is reigning, but the scripture says in places like Acts 2, he's reigning in the midst of his enemies. He's pushing back darkness, but he's doing it in the midst of darkness. Sometimes when we have an over-realized eschatology, we also miss out on the upside-downness of the kingdom. It was funny during this last presidential election cycle to hear a lot of evangelicals sort of panicking about how do we maintain political power so that the gospel can go forward. Now, whether you're, whether you're conservative or liberal is not really the question here. Um, the question is, do you think that the kingdom of God was established by Jesus coming in to set up something earthly and political where he has to acquire wealth for his people and prominence for his people for his name to go forward? Or did he establish an upside down kingdom where even in times of persecution and suffering, the gospel goes forward with power and life and clarity? Triumphalism leads us to believe that we can have Jesus and not participate in his suffering. Scripture says, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. The not yetness of the kingdom means every tear hasn't yet been wiped away. So if you're a Christian, guess what? You're going to cry a lot. You're going to cry a lot. You're going to cry about sad stuff in your life. You're going to cry about sad stuff in your family. You're going to cry about sad stuff in your city. That's part of what it is to be a Christian in the kingdom of God that's here but also not yet. Sometimes over-realized eschatology leads to faith being used like a weapon to hit people. If you have an over-realized eschatology, it doesn't leave room for God's sovereign workings in the midst of sickness. And by the way, we, we believe in miracles. Like we pray for sick people all the time. 
Sometimes Jesus heals them. I love it when he does that. But if you have an over-realized eschatology and you lay hands on a sick person and pray for them and they don't get better, what's the one conclusion that you're left with? You didn't have enough faith. See, an over-realized eschatology doesn't stand in the tension of, hey, he's king, he's Lord, he's got all power and all authority, and yet in his goodness and patience, he is working in history in such a way that the glory of his cross is a glory that really looks different than what we thought was beautiful and powerful before we met Jesus. Now, we can go the other direction. And instead of having an under-realized eschatology, we could have an over-realized eschatology. It's kind of like um, the, the kingdom's here, but not much, not much. And this is an emphasis on all that we're waiting on. And this can lead to cynicism and more of a titanic view than a, the world's like Syria that needs to be restored. I've heard friends celebrating really terrible events in history because in their timeline, their charts and their graphs of exactly the day and week that Jesus is going to come back, they're like, oh, sweet. Oh, sweet. People blew up more buildings in America. Awesome. Tribulation's coming. We get to get sucked out of here. Like That's just a view, that's a view of, of studying the Bible that I just think is really weird and unhelpful and new in history. And what it really tells is they don't understand just how much he's king today and working today and moving today. If we don't pray big prayers to Jesus, who is king of kings and Lord of lords, it probably indicates that we have an under-realized eschatology. Do you know that Jesus could sovereignly shake the Middle East and bring about revival in the Muslim world like that? He's not in a cosmic struggle with the powers of darkness, like going to the gym, training really hard, trying to beef up so that he can go toe to toe. He's Lord. Demons shudder at his name. He's sovereignly working in history. He has power and authority. Now, practically, what does this mean? Well, let me try to put it like this. If all that's true and there's the nowness and the not yetness, how should we as the people of God engage with this kingdom? Well, let, let me use the language of a guy named Drew Dodson, a guy from Arkansas that we really like. Um, Dodson puts it like this. Healthy missional biblical churches are like kingdom outposts in the midst of the darkness. What do we want for frontline? We want to be a kingdom outpost in Oklahoma City. What the heck does that mean? Well, it means that we get to show the kingdom in the way that God's forming us to look like Jesus and changing what we love and what we think is beautiful and teaching us how to treat each other, we get to proclaim the kingdom and we get to demonstrate the kingdom in good deeds. Here's, here's how this fleshes out. Um, let's talk about ethics for just a second. Because if the kingdom of God is God's people in his place under his rule, any church of Jesus that loves Jesus is God's people called by his name in God's place, where is he? He's wherever his people are. We're his temple. Under his rule, Jesus is the boss. We're not. So let's just talk for a second of what Oklahoma City would see about the kingdom of God if all the men in our church honored and cared for the women in our church like sisters. They would see a glimpse of the kingdom of God. What would the world see 
if Frontline Church demonstrated an ethic in our financial dealings where instead of worshiping money, we worship God and we use money as a tool for the advancement of his mission and the care for others. People get glimpses of it sometimes. We got community groups meeting all over OKC and sometimes just bad things happen to people. And the ethic of the kingdom is that God's loved us, we're gonna love each other. And when the people of God rally around each other and care for each other, what's happening is their community is seeing a glimpse of the kingdom of God when we love and serve the poor, when we care for the sick. In the first century, Christians refused to practice the pagan practice of leaving babies that were unwanted out to die. Because in the kingdom of God, babies have value. And the pagan world saw that and they were like, oh, that's different. In the first 300 years of the church, in the first 300 years of the church, there was this crazy, crazy, Courage in the hearts of Christians that led them to go to the aid of people dying during times of plague. And instead of being terrified that they might, they might contract the disease and die, they were willing to show dignity to the sick people and love them and care for them when the pagans wouldn't. And the pagan world saw it and said, hey man, you're a part of a different kingdom than what I'm a part of. William Wilberforce, if you ever heard of him, was a political leader in the UK that devoted his life to the abolition of slavery. And he rallied around him a community of kingdom-minded believers that said, hey, this is evil. Um, If we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that means that we have to war against things that are not in heaven. Guess what's not in heaven? Any form of racism, any form. Because in heaven, all nations, tribes, and tongues Different cultures, different backgrounds are all together, not segregated out in different sections. They're all together before the throne of grace, worshiping the living God. So Wilberforce engaged that. Why? Because he wanted to give the world a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. So as I wrap this thing up, when we talk about kingdom demonstration, we're talking about, yeah, man, we want to care about the spiritual souls of people. Tell them about Jesus. We also want to care about their bodies and their houses and their neighborhoods and their schools. We want to care about the poor. We want to care about the things that God cares about in the material world. We want to love people the way that God loves people. So should the people of God want to tell a racist about the gospel so that he can repent of sin and meet Jesus? Yeah. Should the people of God want to stand up against systemic racism in society and work for greater justice and equity? Yeah, it's not an either or. Should the people of God want to tell a poor person about the riches of faith in Christ that actually, if they're in Christ, they have all things, even if they don't have a whole lot of money in this world? Yeah. Should the people of God also work to engage extreme poverty all over the world to try to bring an end to it so that there's a better glimpse of the coming kingdom in which there's enough? There's provision. Yeah. See, kingdom focus means that we're a part of what Jesus is doing. And ultimately what he's doing is reconciling people to the father through his cross, but he's also redeeming and reconciling all things. Colossians 2. 